Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Bible teacher Duffy Robbins and was recorded on Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You could also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Duffy. All right, good morning, everybody. How you doing this morning? Good, you're looking good. Hey, let's thank these folks in the worship band for leading us. Pretty amazing. Lizzie and some, a couple of other um, of her colleagues wrote that uh, worship song that we just heard and sang, and that's just amazing. So anyway, we're glad you're here today. If you're joining us online, uh, good morning. Glad to have you here. If we haven't met, my name is Duffy Robbins, and those of you who are here in the communion service. We're glad to have you joining us as well. And of course, everybody right here in the auditorium. Uh, Several years ago, I wrote a book for teenagers called Going the Distance. Going the Distance. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it. And uh, it was, uh, well, no, because I know four people bought the darn thing. But it was a book about how to build your faith for the long haul. And um, anyway, the main theme of the book uh, came from Paul's letter to the Philippians. So early in the book, uh, because this is a teenage audience, most of them don't know anything about Philippians, and so I decided to uh, introduce them to a key passage from Philippians chapter 3. So early in the book, I wanted to uh, read to them. So early in the book, I have this kind of uh, little section from Philippians chapter 3, right on page 3, and, uh, and I'm actually citing from this chapter. Finally, my brothers, Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. And then it says, author's note, if you don't understand what circumcision is, see the diagram on the next page. Uh, actually, uh, then it says, we were only kidding about that circumcision diagram. Didn't mean to scare you. Uh, seriously, if you don't know what circumcision is, try this. Go to your telephone right now, call your pastor, and ask him. This is a great way to start a conversation with your pastor and a fun way to meet people on your church staff. For extra credit, have your sister make the call. For extra, extra credit... Have your mom make the call. For extra, extra, extra credit, draw a diagram based on your conversation with the pastor and share it in Sunday school next week. Well, needless to say, uh, sales took off until the book was banned in every church in the country. But uh, I'm beginning with that short uh, excerpt from my book this morning because, because it actually points us directly to one of the key issues that faced the early church as they took the gospel beyond the boundaries of Jewish culture and into the wild west of Gentile culture. Now, we've, we've been doing uh, this extended study through the book of Acts. And, and last week, you may remember in Acts chapter 14, we saw how that, how that outward movement of the Spirit of God and the church required the church to kind of retool and confront a whole new range of, of questions and perspectives. And this morning, uh, as we move into Acts chapter 15, we're going to see that the church faced a very hot-button cultural issue that actually, actually ended up leading them into a more full and, and faithful understanding of just how good, just how good is the good news 
of the gospel. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, you see these folks walking down the aisle. If you'll raise your hand, they'd be more than happy to, uh, to give you one right there. That's right. And, and you may keep this as a gift from Faith Bridge. Just put your hand up. These folks would love to give you a Bible. Uh, Acts is about two-thirds of the way through the Scripture. I see one more hand back there. Great. And uh, the book of Acts, we're going to go to chapter 15, verse 1. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and the elders uh, met together in Jerusalem. They went up to Jerusalem as apostles and elders to discuss this question. Well, I'm going to uh, stop here for just a minute because I do want us to notice very, very carefully that, that, uh, that, that short little phrase, no small dissension and debate, because that's a phrase that reminds us that theology matters. Theology matters, and, and I point that out because I think it's just a common mindset of our culture today, even in the church, that theology doesn't matter. You know, that, 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 you know, theology is mostly about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen and, you know, whether uh, there's going to be good Wi-Fi in heaven. And, and, and it's just, you know, questions nobody really cares about. The early church leaders understood that theology matters because God's revelation of himself matters. I think, I think C.S. Lewis nailed it when he wrote, if you don't listen to theology, that won't mean you have no ideas about God. It will mean you have a lot of wrong ideas about God. Twice, twice in the span of five verses, verse 2 and verse 7, Luke writes that there was much debate about these questions. And why is this debate so intense? Because theology matters. Theology matters. Let's go back to the text, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas were sent on their way by the church. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, these new Gentile believers. It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, why? Because theology matters. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, let me say, first of all, you're going to be, I think, relieved to hear this morning that we're not going to uh, offer you a, a prolonged discussion on circumcision. 
Uh, You've already uh, heard some suggestions about how you can uh, get more info about that and fun facts. Uh, But suffice it to say, we we were all kind of relieved uh, when we kind of went through the preaching schedule and realized this chapter was not going to fall on Father's Day. But but, uh, we only missed it by a few weeks. It was a close call. But that doesn't mean in in any sense that we should somehow just tippy-toe by this pastor a passage and the way you might walk, you know, timidly past a, a sleeping dog. In fact, what we really need to understand this morning is that the passage we just read may not sound like it, but the passage we just read, Acts chapter 15, is one of the pivotal passages in the New Testament. In fact, Acts chapter 15 is literally a central chapter in terms of its location in the book of Acts. It's, it's right smack in the middle of the book. Acts chapter 1 to 14 has about 12,385 words in the English translation. Acts chapter 15 to Acts chapter 28 has about 12,502 words. So with Acts chapter 15, we are literally in the middle of it in more ways than one. But it's also a pivotal passage because it marks a turning point in how the church finally came to understand the amazing scandalous grace of God. As you go through the passage, you realize that there are basically three sections to Acts chapter 15. Section 1, verses 1 to 5, the problem is presented. And then in section 2, verses 6 to 21, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, and the apostles and early church elders debate that problem, debate that issue. And then in section 3, verses 22 to 35, they compose a letter of clarification to be sent out to all the churches. Uh, What I want to try to do in the next few minutes is to sort of zoom in on each of those three sections so that we can understand them more clearly. First of all, section one. Section one, this is where the problem is presented, verses one to five. The problem in short, as it's described in verse one of Acts chapter 15, is that some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, uh, to people like the Gentiles, we met last week in in Acts chapter 14, uh, who turned from pagan gods to worship the one true God. Um, And and for that matter, even to folks like us who are here this morning, who are most of us uh, not raised with Jewish customs and traditions, these men from Judea were actually saying, look, it's not enough to just believe in Jesus. You must also become Jewish. You must become Jewish. And if you're already a Jew and you've now become a Christian, well, you still have to obey all the laws of Moses. In other words, first of all, if you're male, you have to get circumcised. And secondly, male or female, you have to keep all the laws and customs of of, of Moses. Because remember, if, if you were Jewish, you were raised you, you, you know, on Old Testament law. It was the air you breathed. And, and one of the most important Jewish laws was that every single male had to be circumcised. It was a sign to sort of separate the people of God from the world. So these Judaizers were saying, look, if you're really going to be a child of God, If you're really going to be a child of God, you have to be circumcised. And we see these same false teachers uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. We've already heard this morning Paul's warning to the Philippians about, you know, those those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. 
Uh, but Paul also, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, um, gravely warns the believers to beware of false teachers. He actually, calls, he actually calls these people the circumcision party, the circumcision party. And, and by the way, if you are here this morning and you're a high school student uh, and, and, and you've been struggling in English class to really understand that term oxymoron, consider that phrase circumcision party. Uh, This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Because when you shuck it down, what these false teachers were saying is that salvation comes not by grace, not by grace through faith in Christ and his death on the cross, but by the efforts and the customs of religious behavior. And just to be clear, just to be clear, when we talk about the customs of Moses, there were a ton of them. There were a ton of them. Depending on how you define it, there are something like 613 different laws in the law of Moses. And it had been a huge burden uh, for these new Gentile believers. Because it was a huge burden for the, for the Jews. As Peter put it in verse 10, these false teachers are putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Nobody, nobody can live up to the strict standards of these laws. And that's what made this issue so important. These Judaizers were preaching a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus our good behavior. Jesus plus observance of the law, that equals salvation. And Peter spoke to the core of the problem. He said, the key to our salvation is grace. Grace alone. Look at verse 11. We believe that we, those of us who are Jews, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, those who are Gentiles, will be saved. That, that was the crux of the issue. That was the problem. That's section one. Section two um, basically is where we begin to uh, think about this in theological terms. They're sort of wrestling with this question. Let's go back. Uh, verses 6 to 21. I'm not going to read that entire section. But if you were to kind of skim it quickly, you would see that essentially in this section of the passage, there are three speeches, three speeches. The first is by Peter. He talks first. Then there's uh, Paul and Barnabas. And then thirdly, finally, is James. James was the brother of Jesus, uh, who was also considered the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, and so he kind of comes in to bat cleanup. And, and one of the main observations that I want us to make here is, is, is just how the apostles went about this process of discerning God's will, of thinking through this theological question. They didn't flip a coin. They didn't flip a coin. They didn't take a poll to check, you know, popular opinion. They didn't try to figure out what would boost the offerings or what would make for better attendance. They didn't ask, well, what would Oprah do? I mean, basically what they did, the first thing was they referenced the scriptures. They referenced this. They started there with the scriptures. James in his final judgment on the question, verses 15 to 17, he cites a passage from the Old Testament, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And you can go back and, and, and read that later, but it's noteworthy how carefully they weighed these questions in light of Scripture. That, that should always, always be our starting point on any big question, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible speak to this question? What does the Bible say? And, of course, they also drew on the teachings of Jesus because, uh, after all, uh, these guys had been with him. They were commissioned by him to be apostles. And, and they also 
talked about what they'd seen, what they'd experienced as the Holy Spirit moved among these Gentile believers. As Peter puts it in verse 8, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. In other words, he, he, he showed that they're legit, that he showed that they're for real by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So in in section 2 of the passage, the council agrees together, again in verse 11, that that both Jews and Gentiles are are going to be saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by circumcision, not, not by their good works, not by their traditions. Which brings us to the third section of the chapter, verses 22 to 29, where the apostles uh, decide, hey, you know, we really need to send out a letter to all the Gentile believers and to everyone to make sure there's, there's clarity and certainty about this matter. Why? Because theology matters. And that's what brings us to section three. If we go back to the text, verse 22, <clears throat> then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So here's the letter they sent out. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that last week in Acts 14. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now, uh, obviously, this is not your, your typical church announcement. I mean, you can just imagine how that announcement would look if it went out today. You know, it would probably look very, very different. It might be phrased differently. But, but let's use the remainder of our time this morning to walk through this ruling because, because it reminds us uh, of two important truths about the grace of God and the really good news of the gospel. Two truths. The first one is this. first one is this. We are saved by God's grace alone. We are saved by God's grace alone. Maybe you've heard the the Latin phrase, uh, sola gratia, sola gratia. That's what it means, grace alone, grace alone. Um, Let's just do a quick survey here. Uh, How many of you in in the the house this morning, how many of you are fans of country music? Let's see a show of hands. Okay, all right, quite a tale. Let's let's just pray for these folks. Uh, No, no. no, not, actually, that's really good because, because you're going to recognize, uh, I think, this, this little song here. Um, it, it's by uh, a guy named Alan Jackson. You know him, maybe. Uh, I kind of like the song. It's called Where I Come From. I'm just going to play a short clip from the chorus. Let's listen.
Now, I hope you picked up on the fourth line of that course, right? And working hard to get to heaven. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what most people in America think it means to be, to be a person of faith, to be religious. Is you don't drink, you don't smoke, cuss, chew, or go out with the girls that do. Uh, and, 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 you, you know, you, you clean up after your dog. Uh, you don't park in a handicapped spot unless you're handicapped. Uh, you put a little bit of extra in the collection plate. Because the deal is we got to work hard. We got to work hard to get ourselves into heaven. And it's funny because you don't actually hear many country songs about circumcision. But, but, but this is precisely what the Judaizers and the false teachers in Acts chapter 15 were saying. They were saying, be circumcised, obey the law of Moses, be good, be nice, wash your hands before dinner, don't be naughty, and you can be saved. And in this watershed judgment... The apostles make it crystal clear that there is nothing any of us can do to earn salvation. There's nothing any of us can do to work our way to heaven. If it's not going to happen with 613 laws, it ain't going to happen. If this is what you believe this morning, if this is what you believe, with all due respect, I'm going to say you don't understand what we're reading here in Acts chapter 15. And if you don't understand what we're reading here in Acts chapter 15, In this pivotal chapter, you don't understand Christianity. Now, 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 that doesn't mean that you're a jerk or that God, you know, doesn't like you very much or that you shouldn't be here this morning. What it does mean, what it does mean is you don't really understand why the good news of the gospel is such incredibly good news. You see, first of all, the scripture says, the scripture says, none of us can live up to the righteous standard of a holy God. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah puts it a little more bluntly in chapter 64, verse 6. He says, we are all sin-infected, sin-contaminated. Our best efforts are grease-stained rags. In other words, there's no hope. There's no hope in the idea that we can somehow go up high enough to bring God down. As Peter put it in verse 10, living under the burden of that kind of standard will will crush us, and it'll bring us down. If that's the way to God, none of us, none of us can be saved. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is we don't have to go up to bring God down because God came down to bring us up. This is precisely what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means that for every single one of us in this room, including you, every single one of us, you're not too broken. You're not too addicted. You're not too selfish. You're not too racist, too lustful, too greedy, too dishonest to somehow escape beyond the grace of God because he has invited all of us to come to him by grace. It's the sick who need the physician. The old hymn puts it like this. He says, do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. 
A better way is grace doth bring. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's truth number one. We are saved by God's grace alone. Now, a truth number two is that God's grace gives us the freedom to live graciously. God's grace gives us the freedom then to live graciously. I suspect that uh, some of us here uh, might have sort of noticed in the letter we just read uh, what seems like kind of random instructions for people who are invited to live by grace. Um, let, let's go, actually go back to verse 28 and 29. This is what the instructions were. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Which sounds a little weird, doesn't it? I mean, let, let's be honest. It was right after we've been told there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. They mean to, but, but, but wait a minute. Here are four requirements. Here are four requirements. Don't eat what has been sacrificed to idols. Abstain from blood, what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. I mean, maybe you're looking at that list going, well, I can go three out of four. Uh, you know, or maybe you're looking at rule number two there about the blood and the animal, and you're you like your brisket rare, and you're going, I hope they're not going to ask me to choose between God and Rudy's. Uh, that's going to be a tough choice. What's going on here? What's going on here is that the apostles are bringing together two truths about grace. Well, we just talked about the first one. The first one is you can't do anything to earn your salvation. We are saved by the free gift of God's grace. We, we saw that two weeks ago when, when uh, Pastor Scott taught us from Acts chapter 13. Uh, in verse 39, uh, Paul says, By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But the second truth about God's grace is that when we're freed, when we're freed from the burden of sin, we are free indeed. We are free indeed, which doesn't just mean we're free to do what we want to do. That means in Christ, by his Holy Spirit, we are free enough to not do everything we want to do, to not respond to every impulse. God gives us the power to resist temptation. God's Holy Spirit ends us, in us frees us from not only the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Because, see, the, the apostles understood that, that in a lot of these early church congregations, there was going to be a mixed bag of, of Jewish Christians who had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ. But they were going to be worshiping right alongside former idol worshipers who, who maybe not that long ago are watching a pagan priest drink blood and, and strangle sheep and make sacrifices to idols. And, and so the apostle says to these Gentiles, look, you, you, you don't have to live under the law of Moses, but as a Christian... You do need to live under the law of love. You need to live under the law of love. So, so to be sensitive, be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters who are living under the law of Moses. Be thoughtful enough to not just get in their faces and do something that's offensive to them. And this, is, this is what Paul is writing about in Romans 14 when he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. 
one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words, uh, just because you know there's something you can do, that doesn't mean it's something you must do. It's something you should. And just because there's something you've chosen not to do, that doesn't mean you should insist everybody else embrace your conviction. Give thought. Give thought always to your own behavior and how your behavior and your choices are going to impact other people. You don't want to do anything that, that might somehow come between another person and, and, and Jesus. You want to be sensitive to them. And, and by the way, if you think uh, Paul w- wasn't really serious about this, I want you to take note in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 16, verse 3, we're told that Paul was headed out again on another missionary journey, and he asked his ministry traveling partner, Timothy, before that trip to be circumcised. What? I mean, circum- why? Because he knew. He knew that they were going to be doing ministry among Jews who would be put off. They'd be offended when they found out Timothy was a Gentile. And, 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 and no, please don't ask. I have no idea how Paul thought they were going to discover this. Uh, I actually, uh, Pastor Ken's going to talk about that next week when he preaches in uh, Acts chapter 16. Uh, that's also Family Sunday, by the way. But, uh, but uh, The bottom line is this. As Christians, we never have the right to give up our freedom. We don't have the right to give up our freedom because Christ bought that, paid for that on the cross. But we do, in Christ, by his Holy Spirit, have the freedom to give up our rights. We have the freedom not to be selfish. We have the freedom not to do anything that would get in the way of another person coming closer to Jesus. That's the law of love. Now, frankly, I'd like, to, I'd like to just stop there. And I'm sure there's somebody going, we're not stopping you. Uh, but, I, but I think there's another really important question that we have to consider this morning. Because, because every now and then you will hear someone say, well, okay, wait a minute. Sounds like you're saying, I don't really have to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and blood and things strangled and all that stuff. But then you Christians are kind of hypocrites because you say, I do, I do have to abstain from sexual immorality. You know, like, like if, if I don't really have to abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols or any of these other 613 Mosaic laws, then why do you turn around and say, uh, I have to really take seriously all this other stuff in the Old Testament about sexual immorality and, and tithing and uh, idolatry? I mean, Leviticus 19, 18 The scripture says, God says, love your neighbor. I get that. That's a big deal. Love my neighbor. But then the very next verse, Leviticus 19, 19, what about this? You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Shame of you if you're not wearing 100% cotton. I mean, who gets to decide which Old Testament laws are legit and which are just kind of mosaic customs. Are we under the law? Or are we not under the law? And, 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 and which mosaic laws are we actually under? I mean, is the Old Testament just out of date? Is it out of step with the Christianity we're reading about in Acts chapter 15? It's a good question. 
It's, it's, a, it's really a good question. We don't have time to answer it fully. But here are a few quick thoughts. First of all, it is not a question you can resolve by just blowing off the Old Testament and saying, oh, well, that's, that's just so, you know, 1000 BC. I mean, that's just so old passe. Because that's what some people do. They go, oh, oh, yeah, well, you know, back then when God inspired the Old Testament, he was kind of in a grumpy mood. And, and, and so he made all these annoying commands, oh my gosh, uh, that are, and are just picky and they're no longer in keeping with the, you know, nice, laid back, loving God in the New Testament. Uh, we just need to throw all that stuff out. If the Old Testament were nothing but an old relic, we could ignore it, then it would be really strange that in the Gospels, Jesus quotes from 15 different books in the Old Testament and cites 78 different Old Testament passages. You know, a lot of people can conveniently forget or ignore that when Jesus talked about the true nature of marriage, the true meaning of marriage he went all the way back to the very first Old Testament book, the book of Genesis. And the other New Testament writers, they quote the Old Testament 209 times. Even here in Acts chapter 15, James quotes this one passage from one relatively small, kind of relatively unknown little book, the book of Amos, as if that one passage from one relatively obscure Old Testament book speaks with enough authority to settle the matter. That doesn't sound like people who are ready to toss out the Old Testament. I think the best simple answer to this totally reasonable question is, is this. As we survey the Mosaic law, we need to see that some of those laws were simply civil laws or civic laws. They were necessary at the time to help Israel remain a distinct people with a distinct identity and to help them survive in a very hostile and godless Near Eastern culture. But the Israelites are no longer a nomadic tribe like they were back then, so those laws are no longer really necessary. And then, of course, some of those laws were ceremonial laws, laws of, of, of sacrifice, laws of, of temple worship. In truth, those laws actually were pointing to Jesus. They were pointing to Jesus. Now, Jesus has come, and he is the perfect sacrifice. We no longer need the blood of bulls and, and, and goats because Jesus has fulfilled the law. And then some of those laws are, are moral laws, moral laws. And Jesus was very clear that those laws don't change because they reflect the character of God. In other words, the civil laws, okay, they can pass away. Ceremonial laws, they can pass away. But moral laws reflect the character of God. And Jesus made it very, very clear that even though public opinion shifts with the wind and culture changes like the daily headlines, God's character does not change. God's character does not change. Here's the way Jesus explains it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 20. This is from uh, a paraphrase. Don't get the impression that I've come to get rid of the law and the prophets. In fact, anyone who dumbs them down or, or tells other people they're irrelevant will be at the bottom of the pile when the kingdom comes. I haven't come to get rid of them. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. When the apostles and the elders wrote to the churches with this letter of instruction in Acts chapter 15, they were basically saying two things. Number one, 
don't be a jerk. Do, you know, beeth not a jerk. And number two, don't forfeit your freedom by falling back into old habits of sin and, and idol worship. This is, this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Brothers and sisters, we have, um, <clears throat> we have read a pivotal chapter in the Bible this morning. And before we close our time together, we need to recognize that, that this could well be a pivotal moment, a pivotal morning for a lot of us in this room. Because, because there are already, right now, some of us in this room who are, who are trapped uh, by, by sin. And maybe under the delusion that somehow... Somehow you can work your way out of it, grit your teeth, and, 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 and gain heaven. We are saved only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. His blood shed on the cross made a new covenant with God so that even though we're sin-contaminated and lawbreakers by birth, we can be declared righteous before God. And today, this morning, there are some of you who perhaps might have come to this moment, and it's a pivotal moment where you realize, I need to claim Jesus as my Savior. Otherwise, I have no hope. But I also suspect this morning, uh, you know, being a good church people, there are some of us who are trapped by religion. We're trapped by religion, by the idea that if I can do more, pray more, you know, have longer quiet times, uh, give more, witness more, watch back episodes of The Chosen, uh, you know, read the Bible more, somehow God is going to love me more. This morning, just like this letter in Acts chapter 15, the Bible has announced to us the good, shocking news that we're saved only by His grace. Only by his grace and not by our efforts. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less. So why not? Why not? Let this be the morning that he lifts you up by his grace and gives you wings to live freely. I want to I close our time this morning in the word with a, with a passage spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. I think it really captures the, the wonder and the astonishing good news of this passage in Acts chapter 15. These are Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out, burned out in religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray. Lord, there are some of us here today who, in fact are being weighed down and crushed by addictions, by anger, by guilt. What an amazing story today that we are actually saved by grace, that you invite us, every single one of us, to come to you. That there's no barrier. 
that it's all been broken down through the blood of Christ on the cross. I pray, Lord, for my friends in this room today who maybe have never made that decision. This could, this could be the pivotal moment by which they mark off a brand new, a new stage of life, a, a new creation. The old is finished and gone, everything fresh and new. Or maybe, Lord, there are some here today, and you know who we are. We uh, somehow are under this illusion that somehow, well, you know, if I just keep being good, as good as I can be, I'll work hard and get to heaven. And, Lord, we do not realize how badly fallen, how badly stained, that even our best efforts are grease-stained rags. Lord, I pray today that you would break down that pride so that we might come to the foot of the cross the only place, the only place where we can be saved. Thank you again, Lord, for your amazing grace this morning. Thank you that it helps us to live freely and lightly. May we embrace it. May we be embraced by it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. <laughs>